Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to another episode of Bike Radar Meets. I'm Rob Spelling, the content director of Bike Radar, and I am joined today by James Golding. Um, how do I describe James? He is uh, an ultra distance cyclist. I think that would be fair to say. He's a mega charity fundraiser, but he's also uh, a cancer survivor, and he has an incredible story that we're going to talk about today. You may have heard of him. You may not have heard of him, but I think by the end of this, you will know all about James and and and, and you won't fail to be impressed. So, uh, James, how are you? I'm very well, Rob. How are you? I, I'm good. Did you like the intro? Did that sound about right? Did I describe you properly there? Uh, I think, yeah, pretty much. I always find it's always a difficult question when people kind of say, you know, James, who are you? I kind of say, well, I'm, I'm me, you know, <laughs> I yeah. um, I I ride a bike and um it I'm a bump first and foremost you know I'm a dad um I'm yeah. a dad I'm a I'm, I'm a husband um I'm probably better at riding a bike than I am at those two um first first mentioned we, we could get them on and ask them depends <laughs> 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 uh, depends which day you ask them um you know <laughs> but essentially you know yeah uh you you're right I'm I'm an ultra distance rider um I'm a I'm a fundraiser um i am a dad i am a husband um uh, a project manager and i look after all a lot of the, the the plates that are spinning around all the things that we're doing but um we've raised over sort of three million well well over three million pounds um since 2009 was when i first sort of started fundraising so yeah good 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 description yeah so i think we might as well just just start in 2009 or maybe a little bit earlier because you know I, i'm talking about you we'll, we'll talk about what you've what you've done but you I, I forgot to say you're also a world record holder um and again that's an ultra distance world record but you have completed sort of uh, you know lands entered on a groats correct me if i'm wrong at any of this you've um, you've done the race across the west which is a huge race in the usa we'll get to that uh, quite soon um you've done, obviously done a ton of sportives but you're you're not an elite cyclist. You oh you know uh, well actually you kind of are when it comes to ultra distance. But you you know you are you weren't a Tour de France rider. You're not you weren't a, a youth cycling prodigy, were you? You were you were an estate agent. Is that right? Uh, sort of until sort of two thousand and eight. Yeah, estate agent is kind of the um, is something that people relate to. Not always in the best terminology. I started off I started off as an estate agent, um, and it was estate agency became a platform for me to then move over into um kind of land and new home so i got to a point of where i was dealing with a lot more um big national developers and and they and helping them purchase mm. land and then get the planning permissions and stuff that they needed to 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 sell on and to build and sell on so that was yeah in a in a sense that was what i did but and i i never I never raced. Um, yeah, were you a cyclist? Were you a cyclist then? Sort of, I used to uh, race. Well, I used to race mountain bikes downhill when I was a kid. I first got into mountain bikes when I was sort of eleven years old. There was a shop in Daventry called Climb High Cycles that opened um, in nineteen ninety. Right. And I went in there one Sunday afternoon with 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 a friend of mine, and I just fell in love with these bikes that i decided that i wanted to buy um a kona fire mountain and i did everything i could from washing cars to mowing lawns you know this was when 
you could go out in your local village and go and knock on doors and sort of yeah. say, Mister, do you want your car washing? You know, and and you were charging two or three quid a time. And so I used to race mountain bikes, and I did that up until I did cross country up until about ninety six, on and off. It wasn't right. I wasn't I wasn't national level. I wasn't racing every weekend, but I do. Um, you know, anybody that's been been in it for a long time that's listening to this, you know, I, I do Bob's Bash, I do the um, the Astley Super Series, um, Ragley Hall, you know, some of those cross-country events that have been Malvern Classics, you know, some of those events that have been, that were really back there. And mm. this was when you'd got kind of, um, you know, Dave Hemming and Steve P and Rob Warner and all of those guys were, were making the first official, you know, the first videos and stuff that they did. Yeah. Um, and I sort of I played around with with cross country racing until about ninety six, and then downhill started to kind of rear its head a little bit. Um, and my stepbrother at the time was kind of quite intrigued by downhill, and then just came that shift of going across from cross country over onto downhill, and mm. and I raced downhill for a couple of years and smashed my shoulder up, and um, then there was various family things that happened, which meant that I wasn't living with my mum anymore and my right. and my mum and stepdad had split up and that just caused this kind of um everything to kind of come apart really and I went and lived with my dad and all of a sudden racing mountain bikes um was was not as important as getting a proper job you were doing that and and obviously that that was your your job and had had sort of the the mountain biking I guess fallen had it fallen by the wayside there you were just sort of working making money I sold everything. Mm. I, I couldn't ride. I believe that I couldn't ride the same way that I used to because yeah. of what I'd done to my shoulder. I couldn't ride as frequently as I wanted to because I had to have a job. Um, and I sold everything. I literally sold everything yeah. I had from um, from my downhill bikes to jump bikes to cross-country bikes to the spares, the, the spare rims, the, right. the, hope, the hope hubs, the everything that I'd got, gone. Completely gone. Yeah, just went. And... And then in 2008, mm. what happened? That was... Um, in 2008, I was um, kind of midway through the year, I started suffering with back pain. And over a period of a couple of months, this back pain just got worse and worse and worse to the point that I was bent double in the middle of the night, just mm. in, in complete agony. Went to see my chiropractor and he said, okay, you're notoriously bad with appointments, James. So I want to see you for the next four weeks but you pay for today, I'll pay for next week, you pay for the following week, and I'll pay for the final week. If you miss one appointment, don't ever come back to see me. That's a hard chiropractor. Yeah, but he was, it was, it got to this point of where he'd become more of, not more of a friend, but he was becoming more of a friend. We'd got mm. a, he understood me and I understood him. Um, and he knew kind of a lot of the struggles that I'd been through in terms of relationship. I'd been through divorce. I'd split up with my, my wife at the time to, mm moving out of my house, moving into to a flat that I owned, to doing all these different things. There'd been a lot of changes within a very short period of time. So he kind of he kind of understood that there were yeah. certain things going on in my head at the time and and this was his way of working with it. And it worked. You know, I saw him on the first week and he gave me an adjustment and I went back to see him the next week. And he was kind of like, Do you know what? I haven't seen you this fit ever. You're fitter mm. now than than I think you've ever been. Um something's not right. I need you to go and see your GP um okay. mentioned to gp that we've checked um that you sorry that i would like him to check certain areas mm. um and that you've been seeing me and i can't find anything that's wrong so i went to see the gp that afternoon 
Um, I'll rattle through this bit. But I went to see the GP that afternoon and he said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. <laughs> Look at you. You're, you're young. You're healthy. You're, you're very, very fit. It's just muscle pain. I'll give you some painkillers. So next week, I went back to the chiropractor again. And he said, so what did the GP say? And I said, nothing. He's <laughs> like, what do you mean? I was like, nothing. He gave me some painkillers. He went, gave you some painkillers? Are you, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm desperately serious. He's like, okay, I'm going to write to your GP, um, I'm, but I'm going to send a letter, recorded delivery. We'll find out tomorrow. We'll keep an eye on it. So when it's been signed for and we know he's got it, I want you to ring up and make another appointment and go back and see him. I said, okay, fine. Waited for the phone call the next day. Got the phone call. Went back into the GP. Said, I know my chiropractor's written to you. Um, he's quite concerned about various problems. He said, look, it's, it's definitely just muscle pain. If you're still in a lot of pain, then I'll give you some more painkillers, which, which are stronger than the previous ones. And I said, I'm not sleeping either due to the pain. He said, okay, well, you've been through a lot. I'll give you some sleeping tablets. <laughs> and I was like, and I'm thinking, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't quite right. And I think by, by this point, um, the, I was borderline tramadols, you know? Mm. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to get into that. No, I didn't. No. I, I'd, I'd heard all various different stories. Um, they were. It was. It was almost tramadol stroke to mazapan in terms of sleeping tablets. They, you know, they were real, real strong thing. Properly strong. So were you worried that it had sort of, you know, you'd get uh, an addiction or a sort of? Or it just, yeah, just I, was, I, I knew of various different stories, and I'd seen various different things of of how addictive these things were, and um, I didn't didn't want to go down that route really. So, so what happened next then? How did you sort of? How did it? But basically, this ends up with you being rushed into surgery, doesn't it? So, how did that? What happened? How did yeah? Well, I wasn't rushed rushed into surgery straight away. But what what basically happened was I then found a lump next to one of my one of my testicles, and I went back into the GPs, but I went to see a different doctor, and he said, "Right, we need to get you in for some tests. We need to get you in some bloods, and I need you to see a specialist. So, I'll get somebody to call you." That afternoon, I got a phone call, which was kind of this massive relief to say we want to get you in to see um, the doctor we've been re- you've been referred um, next appointment he's got is in eight weeks time and I said I'm sorry but this was meant to be an emergency appointment she said well it is but he's only in rugby for one one day every four weeks and he's fully booked on his next appointment so but he's based in Coventry right so why can't I just go and see him in Coventry she said well because you've been referred to rugby so you're gonna have to see him in rugby unless you go back to your GP and get them to refer you to Coventry so I gave my mum the details now you never give your mum the details. <laughs> so my <laughs> no. my mum gets on the gets on the phone and has this blazing row with this secretary who then says, um, Mrs. Golding, which isn't her name at the time, but Mrs. Golding, if your son's in so much pain, why haven't you taken him to A and E? Two days later, I rang mum and said, I'm really bad. This is this is beyond a joke now at night. It was it kicked in a lot earlier than it did normally. Mm. And mum said, Do you want me to take you to hospital? And I said, No, let's leave it. I'll take some painkillers and we'll leave it for a couple of hours and just see what happens. Within half an hour, I rang her back and said, Can you take me to AE? She took me to Coventry and Walsgrave Hospital. We walked into this waiting room, which um everybody's experienced, or most people have experienced, certainly anybody that's listening to this that rides a bike will have experienced the busy waiting room. Yeah. Um, and and it's heaving. There's, you know, there's barely any floor space, let alone any chairs. And I remember there being one chair over in the corner. And mum sent me over to this chair while she spoke to reception. Now I don't know if I passed out, blacked out for um, or whether my mind has changed this over time. 
but I sat down and by the time I was a nurse stood next to me with a wheelchair um, right. and they took me straight through to triage. And that was where they then were taking things seriously. Now, I don't know whether a red flag came up on the screen that they'd had my bloods back or they'd mum had given them my name and all of a sudden it was like this need this needs to be looked at this is an ongoing issue or whether somebody looked at me and went he's actually really not in a good way getting straight in so they pushed me through that was the 11th of november 2008 by the 13th of november i'd been diagnosed with an 11 and a half centimeter abnormal mass wedged between my spine kidney and bowel which we think is cancer how old are you how old are you at this point uh, 28, 28. Right. So I was 28 in my birthday is July the 4th. Mm. So I was 28 in, in the July. Um, and, um, this then, as I say, was, was being rushed through in, in the November. They then did a biopsy. I was then kept in hospital straight away. They, they admitted me on the, on the 12th of November, as I say, diagnosed me on the 13th. They put me on a course of painkillers. I was on, um, I was on a minimum of 300 milligrams of morphine per day, um, plus Oromorph and any other pain relief that I needed. Um, they did a biopsy and they came back and said that I'd be, that I was diagnosed with what's called a primary repetineal seminoma, which is a, which is a, a cancerous tumor. It's an aggressive cancerous yeah. tumor, um, that I would need three lots of chemotherapy each section of chemotherapy would last for a week and I would need three weeks off between each session of chemotherapy. Um, I would need to go home to start with where they would continue to monitor my pain relief and everything else. But then when I come back in, I'd be in for a week and then they would see what would happen after that, depending mm. on how I reacted to chemo. And when, and when you get that diagnosis and when you're told that as a 28-year-old, you, know, you were healthy, you thought it was back pain, What's that? I mean, I, I can't imagine what that is like hearing that from a from a doctor, hearing that you have cancer and and serious and really, you know, really um, life threatening. It's um, in in all you know, and being completely honest, there's there's no. It's difficult for me to reflect on that time because what I remember from from that. Um, and from what my mum tells me is they basically told me that I'd got cancer and I turned around and went, okay, fine. And I got up and walked out of the room and I <laughs> went straight back to my bed. Now, what I think in hindsight and looking back, and, and this isn't necessarily directly how I felt, but this is how I, I know that I was on 300 milligrams of morphine a day. So was I really, was I really understanding what I was being told? Was I really where I needed to be? Yeah. Were you with it? Yeah. Of men mental consciousness. Um, but there is also there's also an element of relief that all of a sudden there is something wrong and I'm not just dreaming this, I'm not just making this up. There was an element of relief, there was an element of, let's call it intoxication for the for the purpose of it. Mm. Um and and then there was the kind of the well I'm 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 here, there is there is something wrong. You know, things weren't particularly great in my life at that point in time anyway. Mm. And it was almost like being able to sit in this hospital bed and not worry about anything else for a while was was there was an element of comfort to that. Wow. I'm not saying there's anything comfortable about being diagnosed with with cancer, but I wasn't fully aware of what was going on around me and there were mm. other factors involved. But I just took each day as it came at that and 
often say to people, and we'll, we'll come on to this a little bit in a bit more, but I didn't have any real perception to how ill I really was until I started to get better. So, so you obviously went on to the, the, the chemo and, and did you go get, did you get through those three courses of that? No, I, I only got through two, I only got through two lots of chemo. Um, mm. it absolutely kicked me to the moon and back. Um, right. um, I went from 14 stone to six. Um, I lost the ability to walk. I had, uh, I think in total, um, I had nine, nine major or nine major operation stroke, um, procedures within, yeah. um, November to March. Um, and, um, in February I'd got to my worst, I'd basically I'd stopped eating. So they put a feed tube direct into the side of me into direct into my bowel so they could put food yeah. direct into, into my bowel. So there was no way that I was able to eat enough food to be able to build weight, let alone sustain weight. Um, so they wanted to make sure that I was getting more food coming in. Unfortunately, that tube actually eroded through the back of my bowel. So all the food that was being pumped into me was being pumped into my cavity. Everything that I was actually managing to eat was also coming out of that hole. So I actually, my stomach blew up and I, I everything that I, my arms, my legs, my stomach, everything all started to swell up. Right. And it was on February the 24th that I was rushed into emergency surgery. A guy called Phil Barragranath agreed to perform an emergency operation on me. Um, I don't remember meeting Phil. I don't remember anything in the build-up to it apart from being in the hospital a day before for a routine scan and check over to uh, having a Burger King on the way home because I was told to eat calorific food to put weight on um, to then having a pizza that night with my mum to wake in up intensive care. Um, What they basically say is that my... Because I was as fit as I was, my vitals stayed the same for such a long period of time that they were looking at me going, clearly he's ill, but statistically he's okay. Mm. (laughs) So what do we do? Um, And it wasn't until all of a sudden my vitals just dropped. And it was midnight on a Friday that Phil Baragranath rushed me into emergency op and there were four surgeons that worked for six hours to save my life. Basically, that was a life-saving moment, wasn't it? You you were... That was kept in an induced coma for two weeks afterwards. I had my bowel brought out onto the surface. I had 45 stitches in my stomach from just above my pelvic bone, right the way up to the center of my rib cage. Um, I had two tubes in my left-hand side, two tubes in my right-hand side. They'd brought part of my bowel out onto the surface where the hole was so it could, if they'd have stitched it up and put it back, my levels were so low that it would have just fallen apart anyway. Um, to two tubes in each arm. There was one in my throat. There was one at my nose. There was three in my chest. And, and essentially, I was being kept alive by machines. Um, mm. And I, I, all I, I couldn't actually, I didn't know where I was. All I could see was as far as my eyes would move. All right. So I, I had no knowledge of even how I got there or, yeah. or what had happened. I thought I'd been in a car accident. Um, sure. I was kept in there for a couple more days afterwards. And then when I came out of intensive care, I went on to um, sort of a high dependency ward. So the difference being that when you're in intensive care, there's one nurse per patient. 
when I went on to this next ward, there was one nurse per two patients. Mm. So, um, and that was where I then started this kind of long recovery. Recovery. And so you didn't walk until sort of April, did you, 2009? Um, then you were you're allowed home. And then it's sort of July 2009, the recovery was on its way. And... Well, yeah, when, when I went to, when, when I left hospital, I went back to, to live with my mum and my nan, and that's when your recovery accelerates. Mm. At 28 years old and you're living with your mum and your nan, your recovery speeds up, I can assure you. Nobody at 28 wants to live with their mum and their nan. <laughs> Not really. But I suppose you had to. I suppose it, you know, needs must. <laughs> this is what I mean. <laughs> but, but yeah, I then went back to my own house, and that was where I was then starting to, to get this recovery and... Um, starting to go back to normal whatever that was meant to have looked like so yeah so you you're back home then you're told you're in remission and this is sort of the summer of 2009 and is this when you sort of decide right you know what i'm going to get back on a bike what sort of made you think this is a good idea uh uh, you know were you feeling better or was it just i've got to do something there was there was a bike in the corner of the house and i struggled to even walk into town um i'd struggle to walk up the stairs if i did get into town and back it was to be able to get something to eat to then sit and sleep for the rest of the afternoon to um picking this bike up putting it in the back of the van that i had at the time and driving it to a place called drake at water which was a few miles from from my house there's a road around the outside of drake at water an actual tarmac road it's it's five miles exactly round drake there is a slightly longer loop that you can do but exactly five miles round. and i'd never felt so free mm. and um alive i hadn't felt I'd, I'd had you know i'd got hair wind blowing through what hair i'd got at the time and you know i struggled to walk but it you know it's that it's that almost cheesy an effigy you know the of mm. the, the hair you know little hair there but the wind flowing through it and the breeze on your face to this kind of moment of kind of freedom but that's almost what it was and and how far could you ride was it i mean i'd imagine it was tough the full five miles but you know i sat in the van you know nearly falling asleep for a good you know hour hour and a half before i was able to drive home but i hadn't felt that that free you know this is a guy that had been in a hospital bed you know the, the most freedom that i had for a certain period of time was in a wheelchair with somebody else pushing it you know so so that was nice and, yeah. and i went back a few days later and i did it again and i felt a bit better and then i went back and did it again and felt a bit better than i did and again and better and you know this kind of went on for for a couple of weeks until i did it twice and then felt really dreadful again but then did it twice again and felt okay and then realized that and, and some of this some of this stemmed from boredom. Some of this stemmed from wanting to recover. Some of this then stemmed from um, being told that you should be considering what you're now going to do to wanting to go back to work, but not wanting to go back to work, but not knowing whether I could or whether I was well enough to go back to work to can I cope with going back to work to what am I going to do? So you didn't go back to work then, did you? You decided not to go back to work. You decided to do something completely different and this is kind of where your cycling story, I suppose, really kicks in. Because you didn't just sort of say, you know what, I'm going to ride from Daventry to Coventry or something like that. It was, you went big, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I decided to ride from um, LA, Santa Monica, down to San Diego, 
and then across to Jacksonville via Austin, Texas. And then from Jacksonville, I'd go down to Miami. And so basically, you decided to ride across America. I mean, let's not, we, we, let's not put too fine a point from it. From riding around Draycott Water to riding across America in just um, in a matter of months. Yeah. So it would, the idea would be that I would finish in Miami a year to the day of being given the all clear, which was the 25th of July, 2009. So I would have finished on 2010. So 25th of July, 2010 was when I was meant to finish in, in Miami, which would have been a year to the day of the all clear. So where did that scheme come from? Where did that idea, what put that in your head that riding across America, not even, you know, Land's End to John O'Groats would have been pretty, pretty. I looked at John, I looked at, like, I looked at Land's End to John O'Groats. I looked at um, something called the Rocky Mountain Challenge. I looked at uh, Midwest Challenge. There was various different things that, that I looked at doing. And I always put this little caveat that this is not me dumbing down or chatting about anything anybody else is doing for for charity or what goals or, or things they set themselves i mean you you know as well as anybody else rob i'm a i'm a big advocate of people taking on on goals and challenges and that anybody's capable of achieving anything mm. they want to but for me being where i was and where i'd come from to already get to where i was at that point riding a bike for five or six days wasn't a challenge Riding a bike for five or six days was nothing in comparison to what I'd already been through. So um, I wanted to go big, and um, an America made sense. It was um, at the time it made sense. <laughs> you know, um, it was. It, I would get to celebrate my my birthday um, in America, which is the fourth of July. So it would be American Independence Day. I always wanted to spend my birthday in America, being fourth of July. And I was going to get to spend my 30th in, in Austin, Texas. Um, you know, um, there's Mellow Johnny's over in Austin. Um, he, Lance had just come back to, to, to racing at that point in time um, with, with Radio Shack and, and stuff like that. And that was somewhere that I really wanted to go and something that I wanted to experience. Yeah. Was there sort of, was there an affinity there? Cause obviously this is before with Lance Armstrong, this is before anything had been proven. There was any sort of, you know, there, there were obviously rumors at the time, but nothing had happened. So was, was there kind of part of that was, was, was there his, his story, obviously that story is still valid. You know, he, that, the, the, the stuff that happened to him, the cancer, he, he survived, you know, the, was that an, was that an inspiration to you as a, as as someone who was getting into cycling? You know, the, the, I've got a photo somewhere of me just going into my first lot of chemo where I'd shaved my I'd shaved my head before starting chemo because I said I'm not letting chemo take my hair. I'll take it off before chemo can. And I and there's a picture of me without my top on, just shaved my head, and I've got a copy of his book in my hand. Mm. You know, and I've been. <laughs> I've been asked this question a lot lately um, with the Lance documentary and the stuff that we've been doing around various of the videos, you know, um, and one of the answers that I give to this is that although I don't know Lance Armstrong, um, the terminology is that my relationship with Lance goes far deeper than riding a bike. Mm. My relationship with Lance is that that is also somebody that has stood on the edge of a very, 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 very scary cliff and looked over the edge of it and seen that you can't see the bottom it's so far away that there's something that just holds you back from the edge of that mm. um and that was him you know that was the belief that you can come back from this 
Um, that was the belief that it, it is possible to survive. Now, we we know or we think we know or we believe or whatever, whichever way you want to wrap it up of what then happened afterwards. But to be able to even go from where he was to standing on the, the start line of his first ever race, forget tours or whatever you want to look at, mm. to get to where from where he was to standing over the crossbar to then even being in any sort of condition to be able to compete at that level, that's inspiring. Mm. That you, you, you know, and there'll be somebody somewhere that will be looking at their keyboard now and ranting away. But but the fact of the matter is, until you he actually did he did it, you know, and, mm. and unless you've unless you've stood on that parapet and looked over the same ledge as he has, then um, I I don't think it's right to really make too many comments on it. Mm. Um, so yes, there was an infinity to it, and yes, I wanted to go to his shop, and mm. yes, I would have loved to meet him, and in some respects, I would still very much like to meet him. I don't know what those questions would be. I don't know what that conversation would be about. And it's something that I don't need to worry about because I don't see that ever happening. No, but it, I'd, I'd love to be there if it did. We'll, we'll, we'll do a podcast with you both. Um, so, so you did, you know, you did then. You, you got to the the states. You're, you know, you're standing over the crossbar, starting this ride. You, you got quite a way in, didn't you? And then, more bad luck. In you, you're hit by a truck. Yeah, I got, I got hit by a truck just outside New Orleans. Um, it was. Um, Six days, I think it was after six days after my birthday. So um twelfth twelfth, I think it was well tenth or twelfth of um of July got hit by a truck. Um or twelve days riding without another rest day. So um got hit by a truck at seventy miles an hour from behind, hundred and twenty feet down the road, broke three of my ribs, smashed up all my elbow, and took all the skin off my legs. Um treated me to another three days in hospital for the the tune of fifteen thousand dollars yeah i I suppose that kind of you know obviously most people that would be something that would really rock them obviously it hurt but is 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 there sort of part of you that that was something that compared to what had happened before was it or am i just oversimplifying this compared to what had happened before actually that was I'm not going to say nothing, but wasn't quite the same because you sort of knew what was going on. No, you're not simplifying it at all. It's exactly, that's exactly the mindset that that I took. You know, there was various expletives. (laughs) There was a a lot of expletives. Um, You know, there's a question in your head of, you know, why is this happening to me again? To, am I going to be relearning, unable to move, laying next to the road? You know, with somebody looking over to you saying, do you have the ability to pay for your healthcare, sir? Do you have the ability to pay for your healthcare, sir? <laughs> you're like, mm. yes, I do. How many times do you need me to say yes? But essentially, you kind of go in, okay, this isn't as bad as it has been. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still better than I was. So there was that, and you know, we use the terminology "bad luck." You know, kind of, okay, when when is it bad luck, and when is it just not not a good day? You know, mm. I don't I don't see that anything that I've that's happened to me has been necessarily bad luck because of what's now come out the back end of it because of now where i am you know Mm. it's it's all very well to be able to i suppose it's very it's very easy for me to be able to sit and say that with the hindsight of actually where we are now um and it could have turned out so much differently than what it did Mm. um but yeah you know it was kind of okay well i've done this learning to walk thing before 
I I can do it again now, and and I can pull this back round, and I can I can I can get through this. I know that I'm not anywhere near as bad as I was. I still can eat. I can still talk. I can still sit up in bed, which I wasn't able to do. I can still lift my head. I can still order a sandwich. I can, you know, yes, I'm struggling to stand up properly because my legs are really sore mm. and I've got bandages all over me. But this could have been a lot worse. Could have been a lot worse. This could yeah. have been a lot worse. Mm. And I'm going to finish what I started. And and you did that. So you went back in 2011, January 2011. You, you finished the right. You did that ride across America. You raised some money for for Macmillan. But then again, more bad luck. Would you say, or 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 not bad luck? Or you know, in in 2011. In 2011, I I did a lot more riding. I so I went back to America. Then I did a, a, a ride across Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, I went out to Mallorca to ride with Stephen Roach for a bit. Um, I went over to Annecy and did a training camp in Annecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came back from the training camp in Annecy to get a phone call telling me that they'd found another tumor. Right. Um, and this time the tumor was the size of a, basically the size of a ping pong ball. But essentially what they're saying is we found another, we think we found another tumor. We need you to come back in for some bloods. We'll do some more scans and we see where we go from there. Um, and I took the opinion of, okay, fine, but this isn't going to stop what we're doing. This isn't going to, um, stop me from doing everything that I've set my mind on. So I still did London to Paris. So, you, but, but you basically kept riding throughout your treatment. So you did London to Paris, you did the Alpine Challenge, another hot chili event, um, sort of a, almost like a three-day mini Tour de France, four-day mini Tour de France, didn't you? So, but eventually, 2012, you're given the all-clear, and and I guess the story sort of moves on to there. From from there, you're still riding, um, and then twenty. We sort of we'll fast forward. You were still riding. You're still do, doing loads of great stuff. You know, raising loads of money. Then you thought you'd um, you'd do a world record, um, but not just any old world record. Yeah, twenty. So twenty thirteen was when I was meant to do the world record, mm. um, but various things happened with funding which is the biggest challenge with all of this stuff that we do, you know? Um, but in 20, 2013, we were meant to do it. We had some problems with funding. So we changed things around, um, and moved that to 2014. Um, and the idea was that I was going to ride from Saint-Malo in France, um, right the way through France across to Nice, um, would then turn around in Nice and pretty much ride back following a, a pretty similar route to be quite mm. honest with you. Um, and that would break the Guinness seven-day world record for most amount of miles cycled in seven days. Yeah. So what was that at the time? What was the what was the distance? Off the top, uh, uh, <laughs> one thousand five hundred and something yeah. at the time. A lot. A lot it was, of it, miles. It was a lot. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot of miles. Um, four days in, eleven hundred miles. Uh, eleven hundred miles in four days. Mm. Um, but the crew pulled me off my bike at the end of day four and said, "We're not doing any more." Um, I'd got, um, I'd got knee pain, um, Mm -hmm. and I just wasn't pedaling right. I didn't look right. I didn't look safe. Um, and they took the decision that it was time to, to pull me off the bike. Mm. Um, little did I know at the time that was probably the start of, um, two, two and a half of the darkest years of my life, really. Um, yeah, yeah, this is, I mean, this is again, something else that, that, 
we have spoken about and and if you're happy to talk to people about it on this podcast is and it's by this time you you you'd married um louise hadn't you 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 were you were married again um and i i've seen her interviewed about this but so this is a period where you you basically were suffering from depression but you don't i didn't see it i didn't see that that's where it was and you you, mm. you don't you know um there's there's still there's still reality checks now um it's an awful it, it's it's an awful analogy but once you suffer with depression you will always suffer with it in some mm. way shape or form it's almost like being an alcoholic you know you you don't stop being um an alcoholic because you've stopped drinking you you are still an alcoholic you can't drink and being um being depressed in that way is something that can come back very very easily and um it takes a level of control it takes a level of thought and it takes people around you being very supportive mm. of who you are what you are and what you do um and i i was in i was still doing certain things you know i, I still did i was still doing events i still did some of the hot chili stuff i still went and did um, um, the hope, the hope route, triple crown. The hope yeah. route, triple crown. Mm-hmm. So I did um, seven days in the Pyrenees, seven days in the Alps, and seven days in the Dolomites, with a day in between each of them. Mm. You know, but that was running. That wasn't. That wasn't going. And you know, it was being in this bubble that's moving across France and through Italy. That's mm. that's what that was. Um, and it's not until you are forced to step right back. And then look at all of those things that you actually realise how bad it was. You know, I lied about getting help. I lied about um, certain things that I was that I was doing. Not not things that were detrimental in terms to my relationship or in in you know I wasn't going off and having affairs is what I'm getting at mm. or, or or any of these things. They were just you know I wasn't telling the truth about how I was, I was saying I was going and doing certain things and I wasn't, I wasn't going to counseling. I wasn't getting help. I wasn't really paying attention to what everybody else was saying because it was mm. like, meh, whatever, you know, I, I was trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. I was trying to do things that I thought would make me happy or make me more content. But actually the truth of it was they were making me worse. It's probably one of the, the, the best ways to put it. And is it, you know, cancer is obviously something that is quite definite, isn't it? You've got cancer, you know, you've had it diagnosed. Depression, I, I guess, is something that is is harder to define because it, it's different for everyone and, it, and it's, it's harder to explain and it isn't a physical illness, is it? It's, it's really, it's just something that's there. Yeah, of course it is. You know, it's, um, you... If you you have cancer, you go in and you you have a scan and you have a blood test, and somebody, generally speaking, not all cancers are the same, but in certainly in my circumstances, you have the scan, you have the blood test, and they go, "Yep, look, that's where it is." Okay, let's do a biopsy. Right, this is what type of cancer it is. This is what treatment we're going to give you. This is how long it will take. This is what the effects will be. This will be what this is what's going to happen afterwards. Oh, look, we've got this person over here that's going to look after you. There's this this telephone number over here, and they'll help look after your parents. And actually, if your parents ring that number, they'll make sure that every you know all your personal stuff's all looked after. Um, and then all of a sudden, when you've got depression, you wake up in the morning and you feel fine and you mm. feel okay and you eat breakfast with the kids and we, you, you know, you 
wave the wife off to work or whatever and you sit there with a smile on your face and then all of a sudden bang why do I feel it's like there. this mm. and it's there and there's not the, the there is more so now yes but there's not there's not the phone number that you can ring and let's let's be brutally honest about this when everybody's sitting there going yeah but there's loads of people you can ring and talk to mm. quite often the people that you ring that you want to talk to if they're people that are close to you that they are too busy they haven't got time to listen there's yeah. something going on and actually you can't just turn around and go i feel really bad and if you're going to ring up and speak to a stranger you can't bring up that stranger and speak to them because you're really not in the mood to talk to anybody. Mm. And actually, when you do find yourself in a mood to actually bring up and talk to somebody, you're you're not in the situation that you were already in earlier. You're right. not in you're not in that dark place. You've come out. Yeah. yeah, you've come out of the dark place, which is you know. And I think a a, a a way in almost of describing this is when um when I was on certain levels of benefits that I was on because of my illness um they were um pay related benefits etc and I went into citizens advice bureau and I filled in a form and she said but you filled this in on a good day haven't you and I said well yeah of course I filled it in on a good day that's the only day it's going to get filled in and she went mm. okay let's start again and now let's fill this in as if you're having a bad day how do you feel when this what do you mm. eat when you're like this and and that's the problem is that when you are suffering with depression, when you are at that lowest point, you don't want to ring somebody for them to make you feel better. Mm. You don't want to ring a friend to say, I need your help because that friend's like, I'm really sorry, mate. I'm at work now. Can I call you back later? And then when they ring you back and they're ready to talk, you've already come through the other side of it. Or yeah. you're so low down that you don't want to answer the phone to speak to them. So how did you sort of – I've read um, and I've seen Louise say that, you know, the, the cancer she could cope with, the depression was tougher than, than that, which is, which is, a, is an, a, a really tough thing to, to say, isn't it, and quite a – very brave of of her to say that because you know most people think oh my my partner having cancer twice would be appalling and then sort of she she sort of admitted that actually that was even harder so how did you sort of get through that and and what what sort of steps did you take i saw um one of the big changes in in what happened with me was finding a picture that freddie had drawn and it had got mm. the entire family on it and all the family was smiling apart from me and wow. that was um that was quite that was quite a turning point in the fact that I then started to seek the help that, that I should have got. Because I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Make sure you reach out and, and do find the find the help you need. And there are obviously lots of places you can do that across the UK. I know you're in Portugal. So so I think that that's massively important. I wouldn't I wouldn't have agreed to take this call if I wasn't prepared to talk about it. I yeah, think sure. that you know we 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 have to talk about it and um we have we have to not not we have to talk about it, but all of us <laughs> we have to talk about it, and we we have to understand that if there are people there that don't want to that that do want to talk, we need to listen. If there's people there that need us to listen, then we need to listen to them. And and essentially, um, it's it's how we change those things. You know, creating change in your life is very important to make mm. sure that that you're happy but also to make sure that the people around you are happy oh, and if your actions start to have an impact on if your if your actions have an impact on those other people around you that makes them unhappy then sometimes you need to give up some of the bits that make you happier yeah. to make sure that 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 
that continues. There's no good you being this really happy character if everybody else around you is, is suffering not. because yeah. of it. Yeah, you know, sure. and and that's <laughs> that's really where balance comes in. It doesn't come in mm. from balance. Doesn't come from how many hours I'm riding a bike to how many I'm working to how many I'm spending with my kids to how many I'm doing this. You know, you have to you have to find out where that is. Well, thanks for for, for being so open uh, about that, James, because it is obviously a really a difficult. It's a difficult thing for anyone to talk about anyone to talk about but i think it is really important that we do talk about mental health issues and and what we can do to to help there um but let's i suppose let's sort of clumsily move on to actually um the 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 world record didn't go to plan did it so you were pulled off the bike and and that led to 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 this sort of really dark period so what what sort of happened after that once you you could sort of you sort of felt yourself coming out of 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 the really sort of dark time I still, yeah, kind of, I mean, I'd still done various, I'd still done a lot of riding and still done a lot of events. And um, I came back from the 2016 um, Holt route. I did the Triple Crown again. Um, and, you know, there's always this, you've got a massive engine. And so Race Across America would always appeal to me. And I sort of said, look, you know, I need to do Ram. But before mm. before I go and do Ram, we need to go back and, and do the seven-day world record. Um, which was when um, we then completely decomplicated everything around the seven-day world record. Um, mm. Myself and Dean Downing had been chatting a lot. Um, he'd just gone into coaching. He wasn't directly coaching me at the time, but I got on very, very well with Dean. We'd met on a couple of different events. We'd done a few rides together, and I had... I had this level of respect for Dean and and it was um and it was obvious without trying to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet that he had a level of respect for me as well. And I sort of said, Look, would you will you come and crew the seven day world record for me? Would you come and, and help me out with that? And he was like, Yeah, of course I would. Yeah. And and when I say would you come and crew it, I mean literally, would you crew it? So there was there was me, there was Dean Downing, and then there was Jules Diamond was doing photos. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mark Sinclair came up for, for the weekend as well. Um, and outside of that, it was, you know, it was me and Dean. I think uh, Stephen, uh, one of the guys from Hot Chili, uh, Nibsy, came over and, and did a day with us as well. But So where did, where did you go and do it for the, the second attempt? Was that in France again or? No, I did it at home. I did it in rugby. Right. So um, my Louise and Freddie went and stayed with my mum and me and Dino stayed at the house and we rode from my back door every morning. Um, I would drive out. Dean would follow in Louise's car with an orange sticker across the back saying world record attempt in progress. And I would ride just the local roads that I'd, that I'd ridden in training, that I'd ridden for years, that I knew as a kid. Um, and I would just go out with the with the goal of riding roughly around 240 to 250 miles a day. A day, right. And then back back home to sleep or? Yeah, back home, sleep, eat, shower, um, generally around sort of four or five hours, and then back out the door again okay. and just ride my bike. And how far did you go in the end? What was the, the end? 1,766. Right. So two... 2,488 kilometres, I think that's yeah. about right, um, give or take. And that's still the world record, isn't it? Or has someone come along? It's still the world record, but Bruce Berkeley um, did 3,300 kilometres in February, 
but I believe all of his paperwork is being ratified at the moment. Right. I think that there's around 4,000, sorry, 3,700, 4,000 kilometers in seven days. Mm. So I'd like to have another crack at it. Yeah. If someone, I guess if someone else has taken your record, you're going to want to take it back. The, the, the difficulty is that me and Bruce got on really, really well. Yeah. So um, when Bruce, when I went for it, Bruce was obviously watching me go for it. And then he went for it afterwards and he got it. And then I went for it again. And, but for me, it would it had then become more of a stepping stone to go on to race across America rather than trying to beat my mate, you know? Mm. Um, and then um, Bruce went for it in Thailand again. And, and I don't believe for one minute he was trying to beat a mate. He was trying to just break the record. Yeah. Um, and um, But we'd, we actually planned to go for it again last year. So I was going to do, I did day ahead of the Tour of Britain with Phil Jones a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and I was actually going to go back and do day ahead of the Tour of Britain again, but I was going to ride in between all of the stages, which um, would give us the accumulated amount of the seven-day world record. So sure. with everything, I think where this came from was that with everything that we do in life, there's a point in time, which we probably can't remember now, that something that we do today that we weren't able to do. And then we did it. And then the next time we did it, we did it a little bit better. And then the next time we did it, it was a little bit better and mm. so on and so forth. Um, when we first went for the seven-day world record, we didn't get it. But we learned very quickly that we'd overcomplicated it and made it more difficult than it needed to be. So we needed to decomplicate it. Mm. But when we did that and got the seven-day world record, we then realized that actually we've we've now got the record. But now by getting the record, we've actually learned how we can improve on the world record. So... If you look at the statistics that we had out of that, um, th there was something that we learned about race across America for, for the seven after the seven day world record, which I'll, I'll come back to. But if you look at it and you go, okay, so on average, I was riding 245 miles a day. That was what I averaged over the course of the week. There was a couple in there at 200, there was a 220, there was yep. a 280 um, in there as well. Um, but essentially, on average, 2.45 per day. I was sleeping for four hours a day. Um, so, sorry, and riding for 14 hours a day. Right. Somewhere we were losing six hours a day. Now, <laughs> that's very, very easy to do. There's a different, there's a slight rule set that you have to abide by with, with Guinness. You're not allowed any hand-ups from the vehicle. You're not allowed to draft anybody. You have to use an off-the-peg, um, off-the-peg, as they call it, road bike. Yeah. Um, so, and when they say off the peg road bike, um, what it really means is that it has to be a UCI approved road bike. You're not allowed to use tri bars on it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of the records that's maintained for riding a bike, not jumping on a, not technology, that's yeah. not, you know, and, and, or a Cervelo and going off that breaks mm. every aerodynamic rule in the book, but is super quick. It's, it's about the bike. So with the, with that kind of record for you for someone like yourself or for anyone who does it, is it just a case of riding, eating, riding, eating? You know, I I can't imagine riding a bike at the moment, but riding two hundred and forty miles in a day, two hundred and forty five miles in a day, getting hardly any sleep. I, I just don't. It just doesn't compute with me. I don't know how you can have. I don't know how my how the mindset works. I don't know how I'd fuel all of these things. It, it it's it's incredible to to think about. Yeah, I'm very um, I'm very honest about the fact that I think where I've got to in cycling happened by accident. It wasn't it wasn't a plan. It wasn't a 
it wasn't a conscious goal of to trying to get to where I am. It's just something that has come about because of the certain scenarios. You know, it was about raising money. Um, so the goal was big, but then to raise more money, the goal needs to be bigger. To raise more money, it needs to be bigger again. To raise more money, it needs to be even bigger. To all of a sudden, somebody going, you do realise that's kind of world record mileage. And mm. you go in, hmm, all right, okay. <laughs> An accidental world record break, bit breaker, basically. Well, in... in Sort not of. when we, not when we actually did, we knew we were going in for the world record, but yeah. when we were talking about doing it, and you kind of look at the distances, and somebody goes, "If you can do that in seven days, that's a world mm. record." And you go, "Oh, that's how we go doing it seven days." Yeah. My point really was that if you can narrow that, that six hours was lost because of um, right, guys, I'm going to stop now. Right, I'm stopped. I'm going to stand by the side of the road for a minute, looking at my phone. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'll have a sandwich. Um, oh, pass me some M and M's. Oh, I'll go on, I'll have a can of coke whilst I'm here. To start to ride up on the road, and go, oh, actually, I need a pee. Um, oh, can you pass me my jacket that's in the back of the car as well whilst you're there? Basically, what, basically, you lost six hours to the cyclist's biggest fear, faff, didn't you? Faffing around. And that's exactly what it is. So you learn to then become more efficient. And actually, if we could narrow that six hours down to three hours, mm. I was averaging 18 miles an hour over the course of that week. So wow. if, you, if, if you can narrow that down to three hours and narrow your, your faff down, you're actually going to get somewhere in the region of another 100K, roughly speaking, um, within that day, which is going to give you another 60 miles, which gives you 300 miles a day. Mm. So if you, can, if you can narrow that faff right down, you can actually get a lot more out of it. It just becomes about riding your bike, yeah. riding it and having people around you who you can communicate with to get what you want out of them. But then when we'd done that, some of that data then got shared with um, some people that were pretty high up at British Cycling at the time. Um, and the feedback that we got from that was, if you can ride your bike for 280 miles over that period of time, maintaining 18 miles an hour with an average heart rate of 104, you become somebody that can win Race Across America. <laughs> so that's that's the next thing then, isn't it? A race Across America. 3,000 miles. Winning Ram. Yeah. I took the ball and I ran with it. Mm. So, yeah, Race Across America, for people who don't know, is obviously a race across America, coast to coast, from Oceanside uh, in California to Maryland, isn't it? Annapol- Annapol- Annapolis. 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 Uh, 3,000 miles, 175,000 feet, 12 states. Again, crazy. Uh, not, not crazy, but just... Just... Um, mind-blowing absolutely so that that is a mind-blowing distance it's a mind-blowing event and and how long is that is that's over how many days is that supposed to take place so um the cutoff is 12 days right yeah the cutoff is 12 days and you've actually you've qualified for it haven't you by this year you could you were planning to do this year's event and obviously COVID-19 has come along and, and and put that to bed. But you did the race across the West, is that? Yeah, I did race across the West last year, which is basically the first thousand miles of race across America. In how many days? Three days. Thousand miles in three days? Yes. <laughs> I can't, hold on. It's all uphill. That's so, so that's like 333 miles a day, sort of. Yeah, so on the last day I did... Um, it was it was three three days, three days eleven hours. I think I did it in. But on the last day, I did 
329 miles in 18 hours mm. with um, something like six, uh, three, four thousand meters of climbing within that yeah. as well. What is that like riding like that? Because you, you how how long were you sleeping for? A couple of hours, hour a night, or something? I mean, it. I think I did six hours sleep over the whole three and a half day or well, three days. So what is that like? When when do you get to the point where you are, I don't know, falling asleep on your bike, having thinking you you know, wanting to sleep in a ditch, hallucinating? I don't know. I just feel, it feels like that. I was hallucinating. There was crocodiles by the side of the road in the desert. Um, but then you realise, you know, somebody I know that did um, race across America said that he could see elephants in trees. <laughs> but he then had he then had to remind himself that elephants can't climb trees. <laughs> um, so well, so he know. was. So he was just hallucinating. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he crocodiles sitting by the side of the road and um, right. I could see fireflies when there weren't any fireflies. Um, yeah. There's actually a clip on the video of where I'm, I'm laying by the side of the road. The guy's just putting some pressure on my legs and I'm looking up above him and I'm like, can you see those? And he's like, what? And I'm like, you see those fireflies? And he's like, mate, there isn't anything there. And I'm like, all right, okay. Because pe- people can see a little bit of this. There's a, a red a documentary on Red Bull's website um, about you, um, w- which kind of covers a bit of uh, sort of quite a lot some of the things we, we've talked about here, but also does sort of cover the race uh, race across the West and your, your build out. So well worth well worth going and checking that out. Actually, if you if you if you want to see see James in person uh, doing these doing these things. Um, so it's red. What, what's the documentary? So called? it's uh, it's on Red Bull TV and it's uh, the Way of the Wild Card. And yeah. it's the first episode of season two. It's also uh, it's also on their YouTube channel as well now. Yeah, it's very good actually. Well, well worth uh, well worth watching. So, you did. Where did you finish in that race across the West? It was uh, third. Decent, decent. So that's obviously making you feel as though because basically you're going to go back to race across America next year, right? Is that that's correct? That's the plan. And the plan, the plan, the plan is to do it. But the goal is to what? Finish fifth, sixth? No, uh, no, no. I, I'm, I'm going there with the intention of becoming the first Brit to win Race Across America. Yeah, that would be one hell of a yeah achievement. Uh, yeah, it would be. And and I don't, you know. And again, um, you know, some people might have, have read other stuff that that I've had written or other stuff that we've done. But you know, this isn't me trying to be cocky and saying that I'm mm. better than everybody else. This isn't me saying that. I've already won this before I turn up because of what I've been through um, and trying to be arrogant. It's about projecting the right mindset of what we're going to do and why and what we're going to achieve when we're there. And I think that that is um, very important with everything that we do, that we should have a mindset of what we want to do and what we want to achieve. And we should strive towards that. And we should try and encourage the people around us to believe in our mindset the more people that um the more people that think and that believe that i can win race across america the more likely i feel that i am to be able to win it you know if mm. if my crew if my crew are going there with preparations to win it my sponsors are preparing to win it and everybody that's involved in what we're doing is focused and preparing themselves to win race across america we've got more chance of winning it than we have of going ah we'll have a go, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't put, you, you know, you, if you're putting your time and your energy into anything that you do, why should you be doing that for second, third, fourth, fifth or whatever? You know, there isn't ultimately, I, I don't think that, you know, if you walked along the start line of any event or if you walked into an interview room 
the, the same levels here, by the way. You know, if you mm. stood on the, the start line of a mountain bike road race or anything and said, would you like to win? Would you like to win? Would you like to win? Everybody would say yes. If you sat in a room full of 50 people going for a job interview and said, would you like the job? Would you like the job? They'd yeah. all say they'd all say yes. So why would you prepare to not achieve what you're setting out to? You know, and I think also with Race Across America as well is that there are so many factors involved in that race. It doesn't just come down to how you ride your bike. Mm. It comes down to um, your strategy. It comes, you know, somebody said to me the other day, it was a 3,000 mile race. I said, well, it's not really, you know, I've, I've not done RAM. So it, I have to be careful how I word it because there's, there's, there's a couple of people um, who, again, like their keyboard, who would turn around and say, but you've never done RAM. So how do you know? Mm. Well, you know, I've never done RAM, but I've watched RAM for a long period of time. And actually, if you're racing from from um, Oceanside to Annapolis, you're probably not going to get to Annapolis. The race really starts within that last kind of thousand miles, mm. you know, because you've got to get to, you've got to get to the finish line. Um, you know, the, as Dean would tell you, you know, the finish line's there for a reason. Um, and that's that's where the race is. Is you get to a certain point and go, okay, we're in second. Let's get the hammer down, or we're in third, or we're in fifth, or we're in first. Let's keep going. Or okay, we're not going to catch first, but we can maintain second here. But to be able to do that, we've got to make sure that we keep number three out of the way. Mm. And you know that's where it really then becomes into a race. Up until that point, it's about going within a certain level where you're out of your comfort zone but not uncomfortable mm. basically getting it getting it done the way you need to until you can actually really start riding uh, and so how are you going to prepare now so it's, it's going to it's sort of summer next year june next year what what happens between now and then I, you know obviously you, we've, we've spoken about your family they're gonna they're, they're gonna be an important part of this aren't they sort of the the, the support that they're going to give you basically letting you go out and ride your bike i guess is, is part of it do, do you do you sort of are you training like do you train like a pro athlete like a pro cyclist are you out most days on your bike for i do when i'm training yeah mm. when i'm training i do um, at the moment, it's um, there's a combination of of, of tick over. Um, mm-hmm. There's a combination of last week I did 420 miles last week. Um, this week I've not done anywhere near that amount just because of, of certain other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will build up. You know, one of the other things is and people listening to this will go, oh, you know, poor you. But it's like late 30s, early 40 degrees over here at the moment. Terrible, yeah. Unless you're getting <laughs> out at like, unless you're out at like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, um, you want to be home for just after lunch because that's when it really kicks, you know. Um, so um, I'll continue to maintain certain things. There's a couple of events that I'd like to do if I can. Um, there's a couple of challenges that I'd like to take on. Um, we have got a lot of stuff going on here at the moment. So I think that plan and and things that we want to do is sort of changing and fluxing a little bit. Um, but essentially, we'll be maintaining high fitness levels until around the end of this year, beginning of next year, and then go into a full-on six-month block. Well, good luck. I mean, we're obviously going to follow follow your progress and, and you know, we, we, we'd love you to, to, to win because – 
who wouldn't want a British man winning the race across America? That would be, or a British person winning the race across America. That'd be fantastic. Never been done. So this, yeah, this is yeah. the, you know, this would be, would be amazing. Well, James, thank you very much. Absolutely fascinating story. And we obviously, we really do wish you the best of luck with, with, uh, with race across America, your preparation for that. Anything that you, you do over the next few months has been a pleasure talking to you. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you. And uh, thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Bike Radar podcast. Uh, If you aren't already a subscriber, do make sure that you subscribe. Comment where you can on our Facebook page, um, on our Twitter feed and on our Instagram. Uh, and And if you did like this and you know cycling friends that aren't listening to the Bike Radar podcast, do let them know about us so that they also listen. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.